we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, um, please, to pray with me. Oh, Father, here we are, uh, coming to your word. I pray that you would um, do really what this text asks you to do. What you would strengthen us with your power within us. That we might experience the dwelling of Jesus within us. That we who, because Christ is in us, are rooted and grounded in love, would know the love with which you have loved us in Jesus. Its width and length and depth and height. And that we may have the very fullness of God within us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians and chapter 3. I want to read verses 14 to 21. Ephesians and chapter 3, please. Verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now Paul comes to his prayer. Finally, we say. I say that because in in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins, he says, for this reason I, Paul, and then in verse 14 he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we realize that as chapter 3 started, he was going to pray and then digress, gave us this bit of a parenthesis, so that we would know something about his imprisonment and its usefulness in terms of Paul's ministry even and who we are as the church and so Paul lays that out and then finally he comes and he says all right uh, after that digression after that parenthesis I'm, I'm going to to pray this is this is my prayer and it's helpful to us this prayer in many many counts one is it teaches us to pray how else are we going to learn to pray we learn everything about how we're to live before God by way of the scripture. And so we even learn how to pray. He's given us the Psalms that we can learn how to pray. He's given us prayers of the saints in the Old Testament, prayers in the New Testament as well. Jesus taught us to pray. He prayed for us. We have his prayer in John 17. Um, this prayer teaches us to pray. In fact, of this prayer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the last century, says this, he says, however long you may live in this world, whatever orator may arise, you'll never 
equal anything to this prayer for eloquence, for elevation of thought, for profundity of language, and for conception. It's undoubtedly one of the great mountain peaks in this scripture. And it is. And then he concludes with his own sense of weakness, which I share a hundredfold. He says, I confess freely that I do not recall in my preaching ministry having dealt with anything in Scripture where I've been so conscious of my own inadequacy and inability as with this particular passage. He writes, I don't claim to be able to make any authoritative statements, but by the grace of God, I regard it as a great privilege just to hold these things before you and to beseech you in a spirit of humility to look at them and to ponder them with a desire to enter into that position where coming face to face with God and the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, we may find ourselves speechless because of the transcendent glory with which we are confronted. That's this this prayer. We just keep reading it, keep praying it, you see. And the reason that he comes to this Prayer is because of what he's prayed. He says, for this reason. And and the reason is, if we can kind of go back to the context from his last prayer, the reason is he said that, that, that something's happening through Christ. We're not only being reconciled to God and have been reconciled to God, but also to each other. And he calls out all the people of his day, both Jews and Gentiles, we're being reconciled together through Christ, the true Israel of God. We're being reconciled through him, you see. And in, 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 in such a way, you'll notice in the end of chapter 2, that he says that, that in whom, all of us together, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says, is what's happening now is that we're all growing together. People from all different walks of life, all different nationalities, all different languages, all different races. We're, being, we're growing together into a holy temple. And everyone knows what a temple is. It's the place where God dwells. And he's saying, so we're being built together into a dwelling place uh, for God by his Spirit. And so for that reason, Paul says, I need to pray. So why do you need to pray? Well, he needs to pray that we get this, that this happens. This is true. This is really taking place. But we praise that, 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 that we would really grow up like this. And not only that, he mentions in chapter 3 that we as the church, this temple being built up together, are the display of God's manifold wisdom. How are we to do that? Are we to really, he says, yes, I'm going to pray that this actually happens, that you actually, actually carry carry this out and and could I just simply say we must pray this he prayed it for them we must pray it for ourselves individually but also corporately all the Y-O-U's all the U's in this passage are plural and it's all of us together you see being built together like this growing together like this so we we really 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 need uh, to pray this and I commend this especially to the kids to start praying this now. All of us for sure. But but the, the kids to begin praying this in the context of their own lives, sincerely believing this. Can you only imagine if, if someone prays this for 30 or 40 years in the course of their lives, if a church only prays this 30 or 40 years in the course of their church life, what their church life would 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 be like. Now, now we think if I pray this for myself, then everything will go well. And I'll have, you know, a great family and I'll have a great job and I'll live in a great 
place. That's sort of what we're thinking. But that's not what this prayer is about at all. Because what may happen is a response to this prayer, both individually and corporately. Remember, Paul's in prison. Is that we might experience great suffering and difficulty, you see. But none of that matters ultimately because what really matters is that this prayer is fulfilled in us individually and and as a church. And, And what we as a church want to look back upon in the course of our own church life is that we weren't successful because of any technique or any cleverness on our part, but because we've seen the power of God at work in us. That's what we want to see. It's easy to be a church by technique. It's easy to try to get the best name. It's easy to try to have the best programs. It's easy to try to have the best flash and all of that. And some of that's even all right to do and good and so forth and so on. But... You never want to meet the Lord. And he said, well, the reason your church was successful because you had the best name. (laughs) Go, rats, right? (laughs) That's not why. We want to be successful in his eyes, in his ways. And the only way to be that, of course, is to, to live by the power of God at work by his word. Rick and I, um, last week, were traveling together for some church work and we were in a particular city and were uh, able to have breakfast with a, uh, a man who had worshipped with us some time ago. It was great to see him again and all of that. And uh, But what was really helpful is he said, you know what I learned from you all at Grace? Because he's in the midst of a church plant himself in the particular area where he is. He says, I learned that church is built not by cleverness of the people involved, not by cute programs, but by reliance upon God's word at work by his spirit. And he said, that's what I've been drilling in all the people in our church plant here. And we left going, yes, 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 yes. Because as we've said from the very beginning that our ministry rises and falls in the power of God's word, working by his spirit to change people's lives. And if that doesn't work, we're sunk. We have no plan B. The good news is that it does work. That's exactly how God works. And so we rely upon his word working by his spirit. So what Paul is praying here is that this people and we get that. That God's word and spirit does indeed work in us. So notice how he prays. The very beginning, he says, verse 16, uh, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, uh, when he says, according to the riches of his glory, we we get a great sense that he's going to pull from all of his riches and do this. And you go, well, surely there'll be enough because it's coming out of the riches of his glory. But there's another nuance here. And I'll just mention it just to ponder for the rest of your life. And that is when he says, according to your riches and glory, he means in proportion to the riches of your glory. In other words, he isn't just taking some out and making sure we have Enough, what we'll have looks like his glory. It'll be that rich, that deep, that sufficient. 
It's why when the word grace is, is, is used in the scripture, it's almost always often at least uh, uh, given a modifier like lavish grace or abundant grace. And, you know, and you think, all right, that's great. Well, you don't really need that modifier. But, but it just tells us this grace is according to his. It's, it's in proportion to his riches. It's, 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 it's abundant, you see. And so he prays, notice, he prays that we'd be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. What he's concerned about here isn't uh, that which is outward. When, when Paul uses the expression uh, inner being, we, we understand intuitively, I think, what that means. But, but, but he lays it out in a sense for us in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, so what I'm I'm asking God for is that he he strengthen you within, in in your heart. The very essence of your being, that place from which all your decisions come, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, very inclination of your heart, it comes on what you know to be true, comes from how you feel, comes from what you love, from within. Now, that doesn't mean that the other things aren't important. It doesn't mean that our bodies aren't important, for instance. They are important. Uh, we're embodied creatures. Without our bodies, we're not whole. Uh, thus, we look forward ultimately to the resurrection, uh, our own resurrection of our bodies and, and live eternally with a body, be human beings and all of that. But what he's saying is that now, during this period of time, our bodies are wasting away. We, we can't keep that from happening. They, t- trust me. Uh, uh, I used to think maybe, but I've given up that thought. And, uh, and so they're wasting away, you see. And, and, but so what he's praying is that inwardly we're strengthened, right? We're strengthened. Um, and, and why is that? Again, it's not beginning concerned about the outward thing. It's because if the inward things are strong, if the inward self is strong, then we can deal with whatever outward circumstances in our bodies or elsewhere comes to us. Because that it, they will. Our bodies will waste away. Outward circumstances will be difficult. He knows that. He's in prison. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so, so how, how, is, how, how is he going to survive that if he can't change the circumstances? If he can't stop his body from wasting away? He says, be inwardly strong. That's the promise of Second Corinthians chapter 4. That we're being renewed day by day. And, and that's the prayer here. That we be strengthened within. Because you see, if we're strong within... And the circumstances are difficult. We can persevere. That's why, you know, when somebody's going through difficulties and, and, and you're a friend of yours is going through difficulties, you meet another friend and you said, how is he or she doing? You go, well, physically not so well, but his or her spirits are really strong. And you're encouraged by that. You know what that means. It means, I know the body's not doing so well, but still they're persevering in faith. Still they have a sense of joy about them, right? 
And, and so that's what Paul's saying. I want you to be able to, to persevere. Just hang on, but persevere in joy, right? Rejoicing. But we also know this to be true, that even when our physical self is doing well, even when the outward circumstances are good, if inward we, inwardly we're weak, then we're weak. We're not content. We're not rejoicing, even though everything on the outside seems really good. And so what, what Paul is ultimately concerned about in the terms of the here and now is that we're strengthened, we're strengthened within. Now, what concerns me, what I think about first in our context of our own lives is, do we spend more time worrying about what is seen or worrying about what is unseen? Do we, do we spend more time taking care of what is seen or do we spend more time and energy taking care of what is unseen? Uh, by that I mean, we're very concerned about our bodies and we should be about our dieting and exercise and doctoring and all of that. We spend a great deal of time thinking about those kinds of things and reading about those kinds of things. And, Participating in those kinds of things. We, we worry about our outward circumstances a great deal, so much so that we spend our time making sure we're well-educated, we're well-networked, we're, um, uh, we work hard, we have insurance, either health and or life, and, and we have money and a retirement plan and all those kinds of things in place, you see. And, and we think about that in the context of the lives of our children. We want our kids to be well-educated, so we're very concerned about that. We want our kids to, to be well-networked, so they're involved in all kinds of social activities and sports activities and so forth and so on, none of which are bad, all of which are helpful, all of which are good. But the question is, what's the proportion? How do we... What's really on our minds, our selves, our inner self, our kids' inner selves, or all this that's going along on the outside? Are we more concerned about how attractive we are, how we appear, how we look, and all of that, as compared to what's really going on, you see, on the inside? I think of this church Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, um, the church in Macedonia. He's writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth thinks they have it all together. In fact, at one point in time, he says, you think you're kings. <laughs> you, know, you think you've got it all, all you know, everything that you possibly need. And so what he does in 2 Corinthians is he compares them to a church who materially has nothing. And he says to them, in effect, you have nothing. They have everything. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, I read that too quickly. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty Right? So their circumstances were, was affliction and, and poverty, but they had an abundance of joy. How does that happen? <laughs> that only happens when inwardly we're strong, you see. So their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generation, uh, generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, 
as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Um, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So he says, says, that's the sense of being strong within. That's, That's the blessing, the value of it. So he's praying that we, that they be strong, you see, uh, in hearts. If I could quote Lloyd-Jones again. He says, the ultimate trouble with non-Christians, and I would just simply put in parenthesis here to say, and, and we have to make sure as Christians this isn't true of us. Paul is praying that this not be true of us. But Lloyd-Jones says this is true of non-Christians. He says, the ultimate trouble with non, the non-Christian is that he knows nothing of the inner being. His whole life is bounded by what he's aware of, that is to say, of his sensations within himself and his correspondence with the world of things that, that can be seen and heard and felt and handled. That is his only and his total life. He has no inner being to retreat into in times of trouble and stress and trial. He's dependent completely upon the circumstances of his outward life. He's completely and entirely controlled by them. He lives in one realm only. And so when he's distressed, he has to fall back on psychology or drugs or various tricks that he has, that he tries to do for himself. You see, that's all he has. But, but we need an inner being that's strong. So... He prays. Notice what he prays. He prays that they be strengthened with power, that they have power. And this power, in a sense, is for two things, really. The first is so that uh, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is so that they be strong in their inner being. And that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. So he says you need power, the power of the Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and... But you may know the love of Christ. You need that power, he says. But if you're thinking, and I'm sure you are, but if you're thinking, you'll say, but wait a minute. He already said in chapter 1 we have that power. Notice how he puts it in chapter 1. In verse, well, in verse 17, he prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know. And one of the things that you may know, he brings out in verse 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. So he says, this power is toward you, he says in chapter 1. But now he's saying, I, I pray that you may have this power. But he also says that so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you say, wait a minute. As a believer, Jesus already dwells in me. Paul says uh, in Galatians, for instance, in chapter 2 and and verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ already lives in us, he says. And not only that, he says, I want you to know the love of Christ. He says, well, I already know the love of Christ. Romans chapter 5 and, and verse 5 uh, tells us, he says, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you sort of want to pray, say to Paul, why are you praying this? We already have it. I think Paul would smile 
he'd scratch his head and say, I know I wrote all that stuff. I know. What I'm praying is that you experience it. That you experience it, you see. That it, it's something that you not only know, but you really know, right? You really know it because it's affected you. See, Paul knew all of this and it affected him. If you read Philippians, for instance, do that this week. If you have some time, it doesn't take very long. Read Philippians, you'll, you'll realize here's a guy who's in prison and he's writing from the suffering of prison, but he has joy. So somehow he, he, he not only knew it, that he was empowered by the Spirit and dwelt by Christ and was loved by him, but he knew it. So much so that it strengthened his heart, it strengthened his, himself in such a way that he could then live in joy, even though the outward circumstances were a mess, even though his body was wasting away, that he could live in joy. And he could evaluate the situation like this. He said, I know I'm in prison, but the gospel is going forth. I, I know even by some of those from whom the gospel is going forth, they're preaching in such a way that it's making it more difficult for me. But that's okay because the gospel is going forth. And I know I might die, but that's okay because to die is gain. Oh, but then I might still live here in prison, but that's okay because it'll be for your joy. And I know that God is at working in me and, and I see it working out. You see, And I know that I've lost everything, but that's okay. I'm knowing Christ. He said, and I'm learning to be content in every situation, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. By the way, thanks for what you sent me, but I didn't really need it, but it was nice. Uh, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I want you, church, to know that. I want you to experience that. I want it to be more than something you can attest to and something you can affirm, but I want you to say, yes. Classic illustration was given to us by Jonathan Edwards. He used the illustration of, of honey. He says, he says, you can read about honey and you can know that it's sweet. And if you take a test and someone says, is honey sweet? You can say yes. And we would even say you could take honey and do all sorts of scientific experiments on it. And you say it's the characteristics of that which is sweet. But then he says, there's nothing like tasting it. You see. Another 17th century preacher, Thomas Goodwin, put it like this. He said, he said, one day I observed a boy and his dad walking down the street. And they were walking down the street, son and father. And he said, and then after a while, the dad just leaned over, picked up his son and gave him a great hug and kissed him and held him for many steps. And then he put him down. And he said, now... Uh, when they were walking along, the son was no less his son, objectively or legally, than he was when he was picked up in his father's arms. But when he was picked up in his father's arms, he was experiencing his sonship. And so you see, when Paul prays this, he says, I've already told you this is true. And we can even say, they've already affirmed that this is true. The prayer comes in, and prayer comes in for us, when the apostle says, now, I want you to know this. I want you to, 
want you to know, really know this. I want you to experience it. So what's he praying? He's saying, I want you to be strengthened with power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, but, but, but Christ does dwell in me. And, and Paul would say, yes, I know. And this doesn't show up, I apologize, in English very well. But in Greek, it shows up really well. And that is that Paul uses a word for dwell, which means not just to visit, but to make his home there, to dwell permanently. It's sort of like the difference between renting and owning. You know, when you rent a place, you can do a few things to make it yours, to make it more comfortable for yourself. Maybe you can paint, maybe you can clean, do this and that. But but you're pretty limited because you're just going to be there for a while, if you will. You're just there. Or if you're just sort of renting a hotel room for the night, there's not much at all you can do. Even though my wife brings all her wipes and cleans down the place before we can actually go in. But uh, but that's good. It keeps me healthy. But, 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 but. There's not too much we can do there. But if you own the place, right, you can, you can paint it, you can remove walls, you can furnish it, you can do all kinds of things. In fact, right now we're, we're kind of blitzed with all these television shows where people are remodeling houses and all that kind of things. And it's fascinating to me at the very end, uh, they walk in and they say things like, oh yeah, this suits me. This fits us. We can see ourselves living here for a long time. Why? Because it's, it's comfortable for them. Well, that's the point here. Jesus, Paul says, is coming to dwell in you, which means he has to remodel. If he's going to make your inner being, your heart, a place where he can dwell, a place that's comfortable for him, a place that he likes being, a place that reflects him, a place that suits him, a place where he says, I can be here for a long time. It's probably going to take a whole gut job. Because when he gets there, our hearts are the moral equivalent of stacks of dirty trash and peeling paint, clogged drains. Leaky roofs, dangerous electricity, bad curb appeal, especially for heaven. And so he's got to really do work. That's why he says it takes power. You've got to be strengthened with power. Why? Because we're engaged in this, you see. When he comes to dwell, we're engaged with this. That's, that's why you can put it, Paul can, so dramatically in Romans in chapter 8. For instance, in in verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, we're to be debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And so we see this will take power, this will take strength for Christ in us to overcome our sin. For Christ in us to work in us that which is true of himself, that we love as he's loved. And so he says this must be done through faith, you see. We have to trust him. Does we trust him that he has the best for us, even if he takes us through difficulties? We have to trust him that he's at work. He's making our, strengthening our inner selves. And you know how that feels. It feels like you're not strong at all. It feels like everything is being taken out 
And it is. All the stuff you've relied upon all these years and decades, perhaps. He's taking it all out. All the stuff you've normally depended on, whether it be your wealth or your health or your good looks or whatever it is that he's taking out, you see. And whatever you've depended upon. And he's actually strengthening you. His power. Because he's dwelling in you. So that whatever happens to your body, whatever happens in the context of circumstances, you persevere. Not just hang on, but persevere, you see. Uh, Enjoy. And so how can we really trust him? What he says, you need to know that you're rooted and grounded in love. When Christ comes and dwells in you, the very soil from which you grow is his love. The very foundation of your life is his love being rooted and grounded in love. And so he says, what I want you then to know is the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. And when he says that, he says, you'll never, you'll never plumb the depths of it. You'll, you'll never get it all. You'll never exhaust it uh, all your life. In fact, I suspect even to eternity, we'll be um, captivated, mesmerized, amazed at what we find out about the love of Christ. And he says, and then the end result is that you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. You'll be brought to maturity. What is this width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ? Stories told, I, I suspect it's true, it was told by a preacher I trust, James Montgomery Boyce, tells a story about a prison cell that was that dated back to the Spanish Inquisition. And though by the time it was found, all the prisoners had deteriorated there were some chains left there was the testimony of one who no doubt had been incarcerated because of his faith and the testimony was scratched on the wall of the cell and it was a cross and in Spanish obviously at each point of the cross were the words for width and length, and depth, and height. Got a sense that this prisoner was being sustained, strengthened with power in his inner being as Christ dwelt within him, for he knew he was rooted and grounded in the width, and length, and depth, and height of the love of Christ, the width of his love. Scripture tells us that his love is so great and so wide that it includes those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Uh, The multitudes are so great of those who've received this wonderful love of Christ that it's too many for us to count. The, the, The length of it, he'll go to 
no lengths, if you will, to not save us. <laughs> he says that that which he's begun, he'll bring to completion. He says that no one can snatch us out of his hands. He'll always be with us. Always in every circumstance and situation. And the depth of his love. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. Being born in the likeness of men, taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. The depth we said in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Which means at least that while he was on the cross and being forsaken by his father, he experienced all of hell, the depth of his love. And the heights, the height, he'll take us to heaven with him. He'll, he says, I want you to be with me where I am. Uh, I'll take you there. He says, when you see me, you'll be as I am, the heights of his love, you see. And, and so that's what Paul's praying. He says, here's what, here's what you've got to just pray. You have to pray that you be strengthened within by the power of the Spirit so that Christ may work in your hearts, dwell in your hearts, renew you, restore you, remodel you, change you, right? So that you're a fitting dwelling place, his very temple. And that you being rooted and grounded in love would know it. You'd get it, you'd understand it, that you'd live with this great captivation of the love of Christ and know its, its, its width and its length and its depth and its height, that you really know that. And, and, and there's this sense, he said, it passes understanding. You get the sense that Paul says, I, I got to stop even talking about it now. All we can do is pray about it. Just pray that you'll get that, you'll experience that, that you'll really know that. And so, so I ask myself, do I know all of this? Do I, do, I, do I get that Christ dwells in me? And I go, yes. Do I know the love of Christ? Well, yes. Do you really want to know it more? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? That at least this. The width and the length and the depth and the heights of the love of Christ. Now you see the apostle says, pray that you experience that. Did you know it and can affirm it? Of course. Did you study it and know all the details of it? Of course. But pray that it reaches you within and transforms you so that you see Christ dwelling in you and you know his love and you're filled with the fullness of God who is love. Hmm. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray for us that this would be true. That you would strengthen us. 
power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith being rooted and grounded in love. That we would, together with all the saints, be able to grasp, comprehend, know, experience the width, the length and the depth and the height the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. So now as we come to this table, Lord Jesus, meet with us here. You're alive. Your power is towards us. That power that raised you from the dead and seated you in the heavenly places over all powers and principalities, all rule and authority given to you over sin and death. Strengthen us as you work and live within us to sanctify us, to make us a fit dwelling place for you. Take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in your very presence and we know that you, according to your riches and glory, will make us into your very image. And this we pray in Jesus' name.